Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Helping you wake up, remembering this is our Father's world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Good morning. It is the 22nd of December, so we are in Luke chapter 22 in our Advent reading. I'm actually going to spend some time in Luke 22 at the top of the next hour. So um, you'll just have to wait if you are available to do that. Otherwise, you're going to have to study it for yourself. It's actually an extremely well-known chapter of Scripture to Christians who have uh, spent any time in preparation for the last days of the life of Jesus, for those of you who know about the Last Supper, for those of you who are familiar with the characters of Judas and the threat of betrayal of Peter, um, for the institution of the Last Supper, those are all in Luke chapter 22. Why are we reading these portions of Scripture at this, in, with this nearness to Christmas? Well, because uh, the events of Holy Week, the events of Good Friday— the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, and ultimately his resurrection from the dead, um, none of it would have happened. None of it would have even been possible had it not been for the incarnation. The God of the universe taking on human flesh to dwell among us, full of grace and truth in the person of Jesus Christ, whom we receive at Christmas. We acknowledge his coming. We acknowledge his sovereignty over all creation. We acknowledge him as Lord of life. We acknowledge him as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So we're in Luke chapter 22 today. All right, Christmas is coming. Christmas is coming. Now, for many people, that means that Santa is coming. That's the anticipated arrival on Christmas is the Santa Claus, also known as St. Nick. So we have two Nicks for you this hour in the nick of time. Just before Christmas, we have Nick Pitts, and then we have Dr. Brett Nix. So... It's the Nick Hour. Next up, or first up, we are going to talk about the headlines of the day with Nick Pitts from the Institute for Global Engagement, leading off with the House and Senate passing a $900 billion stimulus bill. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Anticipation of the arrival of old St. Nick. We've got Nick Pitts. How's that for an intro, man? Welcome back. Why, hello. Hello, Carmen. How are you this morning? I'm great. I'm great. I'm great. Um, so yeah. uh, Christmas, let's talk about that uh, first because, you know, of all the headlines of the day, this seems absolutely the most critical to me. Um, favorite Christmas tradition or memory for Nick Pitts? 
oh, this is uh, this is an easy one for me. So my mother growing up was always insistent on us getting in the Christmas spirit. And so being from Tennessee, the queen of Christmas herself was Amy Grant. And so we would, as a family, when I was about 10 years old, made the trip from Clarksville, Tennessee, about 45 minutes outside of Nashville, to the Nashville Arena. And we saw Amy Grant and Vince Gill in a Christmas concert, first concert of my life. And we heard Tender Tennessee Christmas, Grown Up Christmas List, all the Christmas classics performed and is forever seared in my memory. Okay, I love that. I'm so glad I asked. Um, and this year, Corona yeah. Christmas. Oh, yeah. Oh, we won't be Christmas. having concerts. So, we will um, not. None of us will be gathering together. So what what do you anticipate, like, memory-making this Christmas? Uh, this Christmas, if it's anything like Thanksgiving, it is going to be filled with rich conversation that happens not always over a dinner table, but through phone calls and Zooms, yeah. et cetera. Um, I, you know, there is a lament of everything it's not happening um, and things, how things are changing. But what I found at Thanksgiving was it was just a really rich time for conversations to be very purposeful and, uh, and just filled with uh, just uh, trying to catch up with individuals and not merely ask about the weather. Um, yeah, I definitely, I, I, was I would exceedingly grateful. Yeah. I'm going to echo that. I'm going to say much deeper, richer, fuller conversations at both Thanksgiving and in anticipation of Christmas. Like, no question about that. I, yeah, that was a good, good call, man. Thank you. It, I mean, this, this, this holiday just opens, opens yourself up for the opportunity just to ask how are things going? Like, what have you learned? Um, what's changed? And what, what have you realized that you valued more that you didn't value? I mean, there's just so many good questions that can be asked that can lead to rich gospel conversations um, this year more than any other. And the people are people are thinking about those things. And so it's a it's an, a prime opportunity to say the very least. Yeah. And if anybody wants to get you a really good virtual gift, having Amy Grant and Vince Gill like record something for your <laughs> ringtone would be great. Right. Like having them do a tender Tennessee Christmas just for Nick Pitts on his right on his ringtone. Oh, my. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I I would not turn that down, and I probably would have to send countless thank you notes uh, because there would be no way for me to express my gratitude for them for the rest of my days. Uh, okay. Um, speaking of mail, uh, it looks like lots of Americans are going to be getting a check in the mail as early as next week. The House and the Senate have passed a nine hundred billion dollar with a B stimulus bill. Um, we could note lots of things that are in it. Some of them are quite odd. Um, I do note, and this will be one question people are going to ask, there are no protections against COVID-related liability, liability lawsuits, which Republicans were pressing for in this bill. Um, but let's, let's, uh, let's give a little survey of what is in it. Yeah. Um, so this is going to come as welcome relief for many Americans. I mean, just the numbers are just uh, plainly staggering right now. There's about 100,000 small businesses that have closed, according to a Yelp analysis. But from uh, March, you've got approximately 10 million Americans that are out of work right now. You've got um, a countless million more Americans that are underemployed right now. 
So you're, you're going to see for individuals, I believe, that are making under $75,000 a year, they're going to get a $600 check, which is half of what was uh, put, um, half of what was offered during the first CARES Act. We're going to see um, money that's floated to uh, individuals relative to for small businesses as well. It's over $100 billion that has been made available for them uh, so that they might be able to, one, keep their employees, but also to be able to provide such things as PPE material and other um, and other uh, health incentives to kind of keep afloat and keep operating during this time. Like you said, there are things that aren't in there. Um, so there's no liabilities that Republicans, some protections and liabilities um, uh, for Republicans are really advocating for. But Democrats on their side um, really wanted lo- uh, aid to come from s- to state and local governments, and that's not happening as well. So that's a Republican win there, but also a Democratic wins against the liabilities that Republicans were pushing for as well. And then there's obviously the odd little things <laughs> that mm-hmm. are always going to make their way into a bill that numbers over 5,000 5, uh, pages. So we'll be, uh, you'll see such things as water resources uh, uh, from a Tibetan plateau. There's a, a, a little bit of a scholarship that will be offered for Tibetan issues. Um, there's just a, a, some peculiarities that are littered within this large bill um, that will be interesting to see highlighted over the coming days. So I did note a press release from um, Senator James Lankford that one of the things that is in it that we don't want people to miss is um, an extension of um, what I think in the first CARES Act was called the Universal Charitable Deduction. So in the first CARES Act, there was a $300 universal charitable deduction. And this bill uh, doubles that for married couples to $600, and it extends it through 2021. So in terms of some things that are in there, for those of you who are listening and say, hey, I am... I don't necessarily need $600 from the government. Um, you could pass it along to your favorite charitable organization across the country, and you can do so with no tax um, penalty. So there you go. Actually, a little tax benefit. So um, all kinds of things in there. Both, you know, it's like any Christmas list. <clears throat> There's some naughty and there, some nice. And so we do certainly want to applaud that Congress has gotten some business done. That is um, that is positive. Nick Pitts and I are going to take a very brief break. When we come back, we're going to tell you where your state ranks in terms of Christmas spirit. If you listen, if you're listening in Utah this morning, you have great cause to celebrate. If you're listening in Florida, well, not so much. We'll be right back. Go tell it on the mountain over the hills and all right, continue my conversation with Nick Pitts. You can find him on Twitter at JNickPitts or at the Institute for Global Engagement. Uh, Nick, most Christmas spirit in the country is, drum roll. You can say it. The great state of Utah, of all places, in a shocking <laughs> twist. And so th- there was a, um, and nothing against the people of Utah. Don't get me wrong. I, I, I enjoy, I enjoy the Utah jazz. Um, but, uh, it, you know, there's a great little there's a great little study that came out. It had six key metrics, everything from Google searches for Christmas movies to gingerbread houses, tweets about Christmas uh, music, Chris, streaming Christmas music. 
And they uh, essentially what they did is they looked over all of those metrics and they uh, identified a list of the 50 states plus the District of Columbia. And Utah, Idaho, and Wisconsin are at the top of the list, whereas Florida, Hawaii, and New Mexico are rounding out the bottom of the list. And so um, it's because it doesn't snow in those places at Christmas time. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't you think that, like, the whole. I do think it's like there's some weather related thing here. Oh, yeah. I don't Uh, know. Oh, yeah. Like even Texas. So so Texas, uh, where I I live, is 42nd. And (laughs) right now, or yesterday, it it was about 72 degrees. And so it's hard really to get in the, the Christmas, Christmas spirit, spirit when you're, you're like, let it snow. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, it, it, those those Christmas sweaters aren't like they're not as funny when it's not a sweater. It's just not. I, I get it. It's hard to go to an ugly oh. sweater Christmas party virtually unless you're like cranking down the air. I, I totally get it. All right. Oh, so little hats off oh, here to Utah, Idaho, Wisconsin, North and South Carolina, Tennessee, Nebraska, North Dakota, West Virginia and Arkansas. That that rounds out the top 10. Let's um let's pivot to a conversation yeah. about the real spirit of Christmas because I do think Nick that um in the same way that a lot of people derive their understandings of hell from places other than the Bible um I think there's a lot of people who derive their understanding of Christmas and the spirit of Christmas from Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol not from the Bible. So talk a little mm-hmm. bit about the real spirit yeah. of Christmas. Yeah, you know, there's there's interesting research that surrounds that. And so I, I believe it was Gallup that put out a study that was just asking, well, the number of Americans that are celebrating Christmas has largely remained the same, around 93% every year. Uh, there's fewer people today than a decade ago that would say that it's a, they celebrate it as a strongly or somewhat uh, religious holiday for them. It's dropped about 11 percentage points. Today, it's 71%. A decade ago, about 82%. Um, you can, I, I think you can attribute this to uh, quite a few things. I think you're starting to see many of those individuals, those millennials, one might say, that were religious nuns, that were just spiritual uh, but not religious, are growing of age now. They're, I mean, millennials, for goodness sake, most, uh, some of them, a large percentage of them have children, one. And then two, that those children are teenagers now, so it's not we're not talking about young kids anymore, um, and and they're propagating this type of uh, uh, mentality onto their children as well as in their workplaces now. Um, uh, two, I just think that there's still a significant amount of mistrust towards uh, religious institutions here in the U.S with news that comes out about Southern Baptists, with news that comes out about the Catholic Church as they continue to grapple with everything that's happened over the past 15 years. You're just seeing religious mistrust. And then three, I just think you see just through the media, and I don't want to blame the media, but we get one glimmer uh, of religion uh, unadulterated in a Charlie Brown uh, with Linus but other than that, it's seen as a it, religion is often put as negative um, when portrayed to the watching world. And so it's just it, it's kind of a, a, a just a sad uh, reality that we find ourselves in. Yeah, if it's not you know, like straight up sacrilege, it's saccharine. Right. I mean, I think about the mm-hmm. way Christian or Christmas is represented in most movies uh, and in most shows today. Mm-hmm. And um, it's very commercial. It's 
it's if it's not just ripping straight on straight up ripping on the church it's then just this saccharine version of christmas which is a spirit of the age materialism consumerism version not a substantive incarnation of god taking on human flesh to dwell among us full of uh, you know full of grace and truth like it's just it's just a whole different story um yeah. All right, we can do we can do we can probably do one more topic. Do we want to do average life expectancy or do you want to do what to expect after a global pandemic and talk about cyber attacks? <laughs> oh, let's go life expectancy. That, that's good news, I guess you could say. We're finally All right. we're on the uptick, thankfully. Amen. Something positive, right? Here's a little positive story. U.S. life expectancy rose last year for the fifth year in a row to an average of 78.8 years. Women, a little bit better news for you, 81 years. Men, uh, although, um, you know, you saw an increase in life expectancy, it's uh, still not going to be the 81 years uh, of of your female counterparts. But still good news. Two things you can take. Yeah, two things you can take from this. One, it can go go towards the COVID pandemic. My goodness gracious, there's been a global pandemic that uh, uh, more than 300,000 Americans have lost their lives to. Absolutely tragic. But we've seen in record time a vaccine um, that's been developed uh, in less than a year, for goodness sake, to be able to ward off and to start uh, controlling some of this virus. All that to say, medical innovation is happening at breakneck speed right now, where individuals are getting uh, uh, getting a lot of help and restoring health. And, and that's no doubt because of the research and development that's been put into med- medicine, as well as just the advances and in innovation that are coming of it. And the second thing we can just celebrate is that there are certain things that are going down. We've started to see uh, that we're starting to see a downtick with opioid deaths, where we were talking about opioid deaths so much during um, the past mm-hmm. few years. It continues to go down. We don't know 2019 numbers, but we do know 2018 numbers were lower than 2017. And we're starting to see uh, just some other little metrics that have been plaguing us. There, those those things are starting to go down as well. Hence the reason why our life expectancy is going up, which looking for any reason to celebrate during this year is always a always fun to see that metric come up and start ticking up. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I also, you know, I think for Christians, when we have the conversation about how long do you expect to live, um, you know, I expect to live forever. It's just not going to all yeah. be here in this, you know, temporal reality. Mm-hmm. And so I think that for Christians, anytime we see a report like this, and you get reports from the CDC all the time about things like this, but so the life expectancy um, the average life expectancy U.S. you know report has been released by the CDC, and that's what Nick Pitts and I are talking about right now. And um, you know, anytime there's something out there like this in the headlines of the day, I'm thinking like you're an insurance agent and you're making cold calls. I mean, this like you know this is a positive thing to be talking to people about. Um, but on the on the other like on the faith side of the conversation, the life expectancy conversation is a really good one to have. Like this is a piece of news out there in the world that provides us as Christians an entry point into a deeper conversation with other people. Like this is um, this this is a good conversation to have with somebody. How long do you actually expect to live? And when I think about the conversations we're having with with older adults, I mean, people who are past the age, I, I know a lot of people who are over 78.7 years old, which means they have outlived their life expectancy. They have lived longer than the average American expects to live. And so not only helping them make the most of um, of the time they have, 
but helping them like begin to make the most of the time that's to come, which won't be here in the now, but it's going mm-hmm. to be forever, um, you know, in one in one reality or another. And and those are permanent realities. And so, um, yeah, I just think that it opens a, a conversation up or the potential for a conversation. But we have to be oh, willing yeah. to wade into it. Oh, yeah. The the back to back questions that you can ask when you uh, when this conversation comes up is one, what are you doing to extend your life Two, how are you preparing for the, for your, the end of your life? Now, I always go back to I always go back to the great uh, dichotomy that David Brooks highlights. He says that we spend so much of our time on resume virtues. What are those eulogy virtues that we're developing? Um, because at the end of the day, that we don't want somebody to say, well, they were really good at PowerPoint. Now, we, we want them to also say they were they were really virtuous man or uh, they were really kind woman. Um, and what are those things that you're developing to make a great eulogy? It might be David Brooks from whom I learned that the the shift in the American dream, like the original American dream, was that we would live in a place where we'd be free to pursue lives of virtue versus the American dream now, hmm. which is that we pursue materialism hoping that our children will have it, quote-unquote, better than we did. And that's a completely different understanding of the American dream. Yeah. So, all right, I love the virtue, the resume virtues. Am I working today to build resume virtues or eulogy virtues? Um, Wow. We're going to leave it right there. Hey, Nick, as always, thank you, thank you. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. I will get busy working on the Amy Grant, Vince Gill recording for your phone. You're, I needed something to do. You're the best. Hope you uh, and your listeners have such a great holiday and look oh, forward you too. to catching up with you all in the new year. Absolutely. All right. That's Nick Pitts. Follow him on Twitter at JNickPitts or find him at the Institute for Global Engagement. We'll be right back. All righty. Um, following some White House officials and members of Congress this week, President-elect Biden and incoming First Lady Jill Biden got their first shot of the Pfizer BioNTech vaccine yesterday. Top government officials, including Anthony Fauci and NIH Director Francis Collins, HHS Secretary Alex Azar, several other um, frontline health workers uh, set to receive the first dose of the Moderna vaccine this morning. So, um, I think that we're uh, we talked last week about how this might, in fact, become the new version of the uh, ice bucket challenge. Um, So you're going to see more and more of this as folks seek to build confidence among the American and global population in the vaccines being developed against COVID-19. All right. uh, We got all kinds of conversations to have with Dr. Brett Nix. He joins us from the Christian Medical and Dental Association. That's up next. Okay, so I want to echo that uh, and invite you to come to MyFaithRadio.com and add your prayers to the Prayer Works page. Um, We are going to be using that list as well as uh, prayer concerns that people share with us between now and New Year's Eve for for a New Year's Eve prayer event. We're going to do it live on the MyFaithRadio channel. Facebook page and on our YouTube page. I don't have all the details yet, but I want you to go ahead and mark your calendar to spend New Year's Eve evening with us from 7 to 9 Central Time. 
We're going to be praying in the new year, like praying it in with each other. Nobody wants to spend New Year's Eve alone, and so I want you to spend it with me. Go ahead and mark your calendar. We'll have all the details forthcoming. Um, It'll be a night of prayer in anticipation of the new year. All right, Dr. Brett Nix up next. We'll be right back. When we hear about bullying, it's our tendency to focus on the bully and the victim. But in reality, we need to start focusing our attention on a third party. That's the bystander. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. Bullies are performing for an audience. Research shows that 85% of bullying takes place in front of other people. That means every day our children are sitting back and watching while others are getting teased and bullied. But listen to this. A recent study found that bullying stops in less than 10 seconds when someone intervenes. Moms, dads, it's crucial that we teach our children the importance of standing up for others. I sincerely believe that the only way to end this bully epidemic is to engage and encourage the bystander to become involved. Check out the articles, books, and parenting tips from Mark Gregston available on Facebook and at ParentingTodaysTeens.org. Joining me again today, Dr. Brett Nix from the Christian Medical and Dental Association. You can find resources that we'll be talking about today at cmda.org. Brett, welcome back. Hey, good morning, Carmen. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. So um, I'd like to talk a little bit about the distribution of the of the COVID-19 vaccine and maybe a little conversation about the ethics of vaccine distribution. What are you seeing there where you are? Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that we've identified and that you've seen, the FDA approved the initial vaccine through Pfizer. And here in North Carolina, we have the initial distribution going out this week. Uh, we have had 11 institutions across our state uh, in the first group of recipients and our medical center where I work has received 3,900 of these vaccines. And so, of course, you know, when you look at the vaccine, it's one thing to have it. It's another to have a process in place that allows uh, appropriate distribution. Now, keep in mind, when you look closely at it, and many people have heard this, one of the common side effects of any vaccine is feeling, uh, you know, a little bit of fatigue, perhaps some soreness at the site, but most importantly, a little bit of fever. Some people may get a fever from this. And so, As an emergency physician, you can imagine in the current episodes where we're seeing COVID on a daily basis, if I were to be getting the coronavirus, I'm going to get fevers. And so if we immediately provided immunizations for all of our nursing staff and all of the physicians that are in the front lines, and then the next day or two, many of them had fevers, could it be the coronavirus or is it just from the vaccine? And trying to figure out how do you navigate this such that you still have the available workforce uh, is definitely a question and something that we have been dealing with and how to roll this out in an effective manner. Okay, you raise an interesting question for me there. I have I have heard, and again, this sort of falls into the category of there's just so many things being said out there, but that just because you get the vaccine doesn't mean you might not be able to transmit the virus to somebody else. Can you explain that? Because I am really unclear how that how that works. Well, it's interesting. So recognize this vaccine is phased out over a two week period. So I can get the initial shot and have had the vaccine. And what I'm receiving is you know, broken down proteins from the coronavirus to allow my body to build up its immunity to it. And during that transition, I haven't developed my immunity to it. 
and I can still have an associated exposure to it. And so there's still this balancing period where all the precautions have to be taken during the same period of time, such that I don't know whether or not I've been exposed because I work around patients every day that have the coronavirus. And even after I get my second immunization, it takes time for the body's immune system to further develop full immunity to that. And what we do know is that at that point in time, we typically would check you know, things like antibodies to make sure that the body's immune response has been triggered enough such that you have then established protection. But in that entire period up to that point, you still have the ability to become ill per se uh, if you have exposure. And so during that time, whether I'm symptomatic or asymptomatic, um, I don't know. And so during that time, I may actually be shedding virus. I may be ill. So the same precautions hold true. So it's not the first shot, oh good, now I'm safe. The second shot, oh good, now I'm safe. It is, I have to take appropriate precautions throughout this course until I'm further enough down the process where my body's natural immunity is developed against the coronavirus. And at that point, you're in a much better place. Okay, that is extremely helpful. So thank you for that. Um, So when we talk about, I mean, one of the headlines that I'm seeing is related to um, vaccine distribution around the world. Um, I mean, I'm I'm reading headlines related to, um, you know, how obviously... Western countries, including the United States, are going to not only have the vaccine prior to other countries, but have the capacity to distribute it to a much greater percentage of their populations than do other uh, countries around the world. And so there's this ethics conversation related to vaccine distribution, both here in the United States, where, you know, obviously, you know, there's people at the front of the line and there's people who are not at the front of the line. And then around the world. Can you just talk a little bit about just how different um really medicine in general, but the availability of something like the distribution network that we're going to have here in the United States where pharmacies and everybody else is going to be doing it versus places where you've been around the world where that's just not true. That's a great question. I'll tell you, you know, I've, I've worked in Africa and many other countries, uh, let alone continents around the world in different capacities. And the one thing that distinctly remains, in, you know, uh, front and center in my mind is just the infrastructure, the ability that we have to have dependable things like electricity and refrigeration and the things that are necessary around immunizations. And if we look at the first immunization, the Pfizer immunization, the Moderna one that is coming, the first two require a very, very, very cold level of refrigeration, uh, you know, below freezing temperatures to be maintained. And to roll this out in countries that struggle with having routine electricities or rolling, you know, brownouts or blackouts in specific areas, let alone rural segments that don't have electricity, you really have to look at how do you distribute these types of things. And I'll tell you, one of the, the, the magical things is for those who've traveled globally, it seems that no matter where you go, you can be in the middle of the most remote location and all of a sudden you come across somebody who's selling Coca-Cola or some type of a soda and they have to have some means of getting it refrigerated. And so you'll see a lot of times that you will map distribu- distribution processes around those types of things to say, hey, if Coca-Cola is capable of doing it, why can we not parallel in the limited infrastructure spaces to that? Now, I will parlay that simply to say that the other vaccines that are in the wings that are following have less restrictions on the temperature requirements and may have a greater level of penetration in some of the more remote areas that have far less resources or have such limited infrastructure. And so, you know, it is it is a challenge. We here in the U.S. have the capacity to do it. But that still raises the question when we look at areas that have a less dense population here in the U.S. uh, and that have greater distances to go ahead and navigate those infrastructure challenges. We still have some of those in the U.S. 
uh, but it is certainly not the same as 90 percent of the rest of the world. All right. Now let's talk about another ethical question. Um, COVID has definitely been a stress test for medical ethics. Um, we, fr- we see frequent headlines about, you know, doctors who are making decisions that for whatever reason, they just were not ethically prepared to make. Uh, this is sort of the who gets what and when conversation. Um, could you just walk us through that a little bit and then, you know, talk with talk with us about how CMDA really does assist people in the medical and dental professions um, in this area of ethics? Boy, I tell you, medical ethics is, has always been forced, first and foremost, whenever we have either new challenges like this pandemic or when we have new interventions. Uh, you know, I know there's a recent article that came out that talked about when the new method of dialysis came out in the 1960s, you know, there were hundred thousands of people in the U.S. that were dying of end-stage kidney disease, but yet there was only a few that could get on these new machines. And how do you identify who those were? And they would go through the process. And a lot of it had to do with location and resources uh, and proximity as it related to these. You know, we had the same dialogue, as you can recall, back in the early process of the pandemic, when our early care process, when these patients would come in it was amazing. Our patients, even still with COVID coming in now, they're having a conversation with you, but the vital signs that we look at specific to their oxygen level is so incredibly low that our natural tendency historically was always to go ahead and put a breathing tube in them and put them on a ventilator. We've come to realize that some need that, absolutely, but there's other ways to do it. Well, early on in our pandemic, because we were putting everyone on the ventilators when they were so hypoxic, we were running low and or running out of ventilators. And so we got to the point of having to ask the question, okay, do we need to ventilate this person? Fortunately, we've identified other ways. We call it you know, prone ventilation and using different types of techniques to do this that we've been able to go ahead and uh, maintain an adequate number of ventilation uh, machines available. And then, of course, other companies in the U.S. stepping up and just making many, many more. So we're in a good shape there. But now we get into the vaccine to the same question. And as you look at it, the question is, well, to whom should the vaccine go? Uh, And the dialogue around that are the the things like the at-risk populations. Well, how do you identify the at-risk populations? Well, when we look at the coronavirus and we look at those who uh, who have died because of the coronavirus, we know that they are those patients that have the highest level of comorbidities, those are that are the aged in the geriatric population, uh, and then those that have the highest level of exposure, which are our frontline workers. And so that's the first round, if you will, if you were to to, to raise the scale of who are the greatest at risk of dying from this, uh, not just exposures, but dying from this, then that, that would be kind of the first tier of process as it relates to it. You know, the one thing that uh, this is never intended to be, and one of the things that CMDA really calls out is we have to take a humanistic approach. You know, every single life is a value. We have to have a, a process such that this is not a death squad conversation. This mm-hmm. is the ability for us to come together as a piece of humanity and embrace the life that each one of us have. Uh, and at the same time, recognize that there are going to be limitations in those resources. And to ask ourselves as a society, when we look at this, this is not about a limitation to prevent people from having something, but identifying where the greatest good would occur. All right. I'm talking with Dr. Brett Nix from Christian Medical and Dental Association. We'll be right back. Continuing my conversation now with Dr. Brett Nix from CMDA. You can find the Christian Medical and Dental Association at cmda.org. Um, all right, uh, Brett, I want to have a completely different conversation now, and that is about puberty blockers. So this gets us into the conversation about um, trans, the, the, the interventions that have been developed to stop the natural 
progression of puberty into maturity for the human body um, being utilized with very young people who are gender dysphoric. So talk with us about um, talk with us about what's going on here. You know, so one of the challenges that you'll find is that anytime you have in these circumstances, someone that may have a gender identity challenge uh, and as they're working through these types of things, one of the things that uh, often will be offered forward, which is a medication that will go ahead and block the body's ability to enter into puberty, the natural process where the body's genetics, based on the genetic code that God gave to them, uh, would define the process of life and development. And in that process of development, you think about the typical things. You think about bone maturation. You think about the ability to close your growth plates as you go into your teenage years. You think about the process going through puberty and the different things that change, not just in the physical appearance of the individual, but on just the cellular level as they continue to develop. If you at a, at a certain point in uh, prepubescent or early pubescent stage and you give medications that will halt that progression, well, you're also halting the development of the typical things that you would expect, which is, again, some of the things you'll see in recent articles is, oh, my gosh, when we're doing this, we're seeing a massive decrease in bone density of these patients relative to their peers. Uh, you're also going to see you know, issues as far as stunting of growth uh, and whether or not at some point in time you allow for those normal hormones to start moving forward again, will that allow for a uh, later stage of growth and or development? That port part remains unclear because these are relatively untested waters. The numbers that have navigated that in the past, uh, when we look at gender reversal surgeries and whatnot since the, the late 70s onward, the numbers have been very, very small. And so we don't have a lot of clarity. Plus, we never engendered this conversation at such a young age where we're blocking the natural progression of our bodies in development. And so when you look at this, Inevitably, there will, there will be downstream health ramifications uh, to the degree that we understand those yet. I don't think we know it fully well. Yeah, it's just huge. All right, tell us a little bit about your blog. Um, I will just say I've now just been turned on to it. It is brettnixmd.com. What are you blogging yeah, about? Yeah, you know, I tell you, it was something that was born out of just the uh, the challenges that I think each one of us go through. And this is not just for medical personnel. This is for anyone who is facing challenges in life. And, you know, it is uh, written around the perspective of leadership, but I, I, I liken it such that many people say, well, I'm not a leader. Well, frankly, everyone leads. Uh, it's just a matter of whether you see the perspective by which you lead. And uh, the most recent one, the blog that I wrote about, was really just born out of uh, a need. You know, it seems the time between Thanksgiving and Christmas is a time of, of reflection. It's a time of gratitude. Uh, and even in a year like COVID, it's a time where, um, one of the, the most important things and one of my, the opening quotes that I love is the purest index of your own personal well-being is the degree of gratitude in your life. And if you think about that just for a moment, I mean, how long does it take for you to recognize when someone does something um, that has a positive influence to you or to someone else? But many times we hold on to that gratitude internally and think, wow, that was really nice. When in reality, the gratitude is something that should be reflective and not just should be something that warms your soul but you reach out to the individual and you just say, wow, did you realize the positive impact you had with this? Thank you for doing that. Because in doing so, it's reflected back on them. And then it's just a wellspring. Uh, you know, gratitude just builds the individuals. And, you know, gratitude turns what we have into enough. That was one of the quotes that I share with my kids all the time when they come home. But, Dad, what about this? What about this? What about this? And there's a level of contentment and there's just a level of blessing that comes through that. Uh, and 
you know, the appreciation that we have and one of the quotes that I put in there for something freely given is expressed in return. That is gratitude. And if we can harness a level of gratitude, not just in the season between Thanksgiving and Christmas, but throughout our lives, I think this world would be a much better place. Dr. Brett Nix, um, as always, thank you so much. You guys should check out his blog, brettnixmd.com, also for resources for those of you in the, uh, not only in the medical and dental fields, but for Christians who want to be equipped on these medical ethics conversations of the day, all of those resources are available at cmda.org. Brett, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, Carmen. Have a wonderful end of this year and looking forward to 2021. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. All right, friends, we'll be right back. the Nick Hour, just in the nick of time. We're going to lead off the next hour with Luke chapter 22, and let me just ask, where in the word are you today? Just a constant reminder, we want to be in the word of God before we get out into the world that God so loves. Have on my heart uh, this morning lots of prayer concerns, many of which you have raised to me. Um, So just want to let you know I'm with you, I'm for you. Um, Thank you for sharing your prayer concerns with us here at My Faith Radio. We do ardently pray with you and for you each and every day and appreciate your prayers for us as well. We've got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.